When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. We casually use that phrase, the end of an era, but this really was a monumental turning of a page in British history. Four. Isn't it funny that even when the Queen is dying and the Queen is the story, Boris Johnson manages to wangle his way into the national consciousness? Within a few days, we lost a prime minister, gained a prime minister. We lost a wonderful queen, gained a king. And just to top it off, we've got Putin announcing a mobilisation of 300,000 extra troops. We need to lower taxes. We need to go for growth. That's the essence of trustonomics. One. We have lift off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. We're back co-pilot after an unexpected planet normal hiatus caused by the ending of the second Elizabethan age. The death of Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth the Great, as a certain parliamentarian memorably called her, and the related ceremony and pageantry meant you were seconded on full-time royal writing duty last week, Alison, and a fantastic job you did too. But with Her Majesty's funeral now behind us, and you back in the planet normal cockpit, politics and policy making are back with a bang. On Wednesday, as Vladimir Putin up the ante, the government unveiled a massive energy support package for UK businesses struggling to cope with spiralling energy costs. And on Thursday, as this planet normal episode is released, the Bank of England's poised to raise interest rates sharply in a bid to tackle inflation. Good news for savers, but not if you got a large mortgage or personal loans. And this busy week will end, Alison, with a mini budget that's anything but mini, with Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng controversially set to slash taxes despite spiralling government borrowing. Amidst this tsunami of news co-pilots, some will be shouting, Stop the world, I want to get off. Well, we can't do that, Alison, not even us. But we can, at least, spend an hour on Planet Normal. It's been a bit of a fortnight, Liam, hasn't it, really? <laughs> you went into a writing bunker, didn't you? Oh, <laughs> towel round my head. The Telegraph got their money's worth out of you over the last week or so, Alison. Well, I must occasionally wonder what they're paying me for, but about once every 70 years, I put in a long shift. Yes, Liam, you're quite right. Within a few days, we lost a prime minister, gained a prime minister. We lost a wonderful queen, gained a king. And just to top it off, as you said, we've got Putin announcing a mobilisation of 300,000 extra troops in Ukraine and issuing chilling threats against the West. But don't worry, co-pilot, because Gillian Keegan, the new minister at the Foreign Office, told the Today programme that... It is she! (laughs) She said (laughs) talk of nuclear war was very unhelpful. That'll have Vlad reeling. And we would discourage it! Don't mention the unhelpful war. It's it's like Mrs Slocum's pussy, isn't it? And I'm unanimous in that, she said. Are you being served? I'm free. So we're not going to be talking about any unhelpful wars, although, of course, we will shortly be selling emergency tickets for the Planet Normal rocket to get away from the pending conflagration on planet Earth. I I hear, Liam, you're packing the tins of corned beef and the sachets of cuppa soup, even as we speak. Well, we were planning to go off-grid this autumn anyway. (laughs) And and you and I, of course, have been perfecting our squirrel stew (laughs) recipe. But crikey, talk about endless news. It just goes on and on. And I must say, I wasn't nearly as involved in raw coverage on either TV or in print as you were. I mean, you've really specialised over the years in these kind of national set-piece events. Yeah. I think you are the David Dimbleby of newspapers. You write these magnificent pieces summing up the national mood and the Telegraph gets huge interest from around the world with those articles. I did think about you a lot during 
the rural funeral and pageantry. We're in touch from time to time. You were very, very busy, of course. But I did want to ask you, Alison, a few days on from the funeral of Mm. Her Majesty, how are you feeling? Well, it turns out that typing while crying is quite a challenge, Liam. Look, I'm not a reporter. (laughs) I'm a writer. And journalists, at moments like this, we are there writing the first rough draft of history. I, I don't like that feeling of writing that quickly. I like to perfectly craft sentences, refining and polishing until they capture exactly what the feeling is. Luckily, I did have a long tribute prepared for the special edition of the Telegraph magazine. Some listeners may have seen it. It looks simply wonderful. I think what people forget is these great editorial teams. It would have been the same, won't it, Liam, at GB News, at the BBC and on Sky and all the newspapers, Telegraph, Times, Sun, These editorial teams, they pull out all the stops on these occasions. Now, I updated my piece very quickly because, of course, we had to go to press. And then there was a huge amount of live stuff to report on as well. The lying in state, first in Edinburgh, then in Westminster Hall. And the famous queue, which took on a life of its own, didn't it, that formed to see the coffin. The queue was called, I think, by Frank Cottrell Boyce, the Elizabeth line. (laughs) Of course, we casually use that phrase, the end of an era. But this really was a monumental turning of a page in British history. If if we think about it, Liam, Elizabeth II's first prime minister was born in 1874. That's Winston Churchill. And her last, Liz Truss, was born almost exactly a century later in 1975. So I'm going to try and say this without crying. At 18.32pm on the 8th of September 2022, it pleased Almighty God to take out of this transitory life the late, most high, most excellent monarch, Elizabeth II, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom and of her other realms and territories. Now, look, it's clearly not a surprise when a 96-year-old lady dies, but it was still a seismic shock to the nation, a WH Auden moment, stop all the clocks, cancel the flights, let the world wear black. For 70 years, Her Majesty the Queen was a still point in a rapidly changing world. Her face was on the money, co-pilot, as an economist, you'll appreciate that, on the stamps. She was the silhouette of our national self. Now, Lim, I don't like the word gutted, but it did feel visceral. I think lots of us felt it in our viscera, this sudden deafening absence of an amazing figurehead who had always been there for almost everyone alive now. And I saw a little girl interviewed on the telly about how she felt and she said, my tummy feels strange. And I thought, yes, sweetheart, my tummy feels strange too. I've got two things to say about this, Alison, two observations, and they are just observations given that you are literally back from the trenches. You were at the forefront of Britain's media coverage of this event, and I say again, as your colleague and your friend, you did an absolutely fantastic job, and you should be proud of yourself for what you did. Two things I'd say, isn't it funny that even when the Queen is dying and the Queen is the story, Boris Johnson manages to wangle his way into the national consciousness with an absolutely incredible parliamentary speech Mm. among many great speeches. Even Theresa May was at the height of her oratorical powers with her stories about the cheese and and the rest of it. (laughs) Some really fantastic speeches. But when Boris Johnson dubbed her Elizabeth the Great, you know, somebody who's very dear to me, Alison, who really doesn't like Boris Johnson very much, she WhatsApped me and she said, gosh, that was perfect. You know... I think he must have felt, mustn't he? He wouldn't be human if he hadn't felt that that would have been such an astonishing moment for him bringing his powers of poetry and rhetoric to being Prime Minister. And Liz Truss, bless her, many qualities which we'll discuss later, but she ain't no Boris Johnson when it comes to speaking. And she needs to work on her curtsying technique, I think it's fair to (laughs) say. (laughs) Listen, I tried to curtsy, it's not easy. But what have we lost, Liam? So let's look at that cue, which I think it was an astonishing act of togetherness, wasn't it? There was a lot of argy-bargy about VIPs, cue jumping, and I think Boris joined the queue. David Beckham certainly joined the queue. and I He think was well advised on that one. He was very well advised. <laughs> Fair play to the guy. He did it. He said something which I think a lot of people felt, 
was he said that his grandparents would have wanted to do it. So I think that that great line from the Anglican service, take, do this in remembrance of me, I think many people were there as representatives of those who couldn't be there, of those who are lost to this world and of those who, for mobility reasons, couldn't come. And I think people felt, didn't they, that had a friend, my goddaughter joined the queue, dear friend joined the queue, felt that the Queen had done her bit for seven decades, so queuing for seven or ten hours was the least they could do. It had a really holy feeling, I think, of a sort of pilgrimage. And there are moments in national life, I mean, people can be cynical, but a friend who was in the Mall when the funeral cortege was walking by and she said it was astonishing, the feeling. She said at one point it was as if the crowd was the Queen and the Queen was the crowd. Now, they are transcendent moments in life. And I think as journalists, we can be very cynical and be looking for the next angle. But I did think there was something watching the live stream. I don't know if you saw that, the incredible live stream from the hall and the way that different people responded when they had their few seconds in front of their late sovereign, people of all ethnicities, people of all ages. I was absolutely broken up. Actually, there was a working guy in a yellow fluorescent jacket and he just stood there and he blew her a kiss and then he walked away. He obviously couldn't bear the, the, the emotion so I think that it brought a lot to the surface, particularly, this is something I wrote about, because in the run-up to losing the Queen, sometimes feels that, I mean, I think that Piers Morgan described it as <laughs> everything is shit. Nothing works in this country, does it? The sort of the energy thing is absolutely hopeless. The NHS is collapsing. We'll come to that. Yes, we'll come to that. But <laughs> this was something we still do magnificently, wasn't it? What country in the world could put on that fantastic pageantry? And more importantly, what country in the world would such a huge share of the population of all backgrounds and ethnicities say this means a lot to us? Absolutely. And think about the Queen, you know, all this absolute nonsense about racism and so on. What an astonishing ambassador for our country the amazing soft power of Elizabeth II. So not only did she summon 500 heads of world global leaders and presidents and panjandrums and whatever, absolutely astounding global reach. And in this country, the funeral was watched by a peak of around 37.5 million viewers, believed to be the biggest audience for TV broadcast in history. I suppose something that we should say, which has been kept really under wraps, the new king, Charles III, swung into action. This is not just a, a moment of deafening sadness for the country. It's a moment of maximum peril for the monarchy. Let's not kid ourselves, Liam. This smooth transition, it had to be made to look as smooth as possible. Charles hasn't always been very popular. The polls before were showing that more people wanted Prince William to succeed than Charles. So essentially, the next few days after the Queen's death, the King travelled over 1,500 miles. Of course, the Her Majesty died in Scotland, so he was up to Edinburgh. Then he was off to Northern Ireland. Then he went to Wales. Imagine grieving your mother and having to shore up the union. It's no wonder he got a bit narky about a fountain pen, <laughs> he isn't it? He did, didn't he? He did. But tell listeners, because you said to me that you'd met the Queen and you're a tough old thing, aren't you? I mean, it moved you, didn't it, meeting the Queen? I did meet the Queen, Alison, a couple of times. The first time was when I was 18 and I was a sixth former. And for all kinds of reasons, she visited a school and I was invited to have tea with her, a very small party of people and when she heard my very Irish name and looked at my Celtic physiognomy and this was <laughs> the late 1980s a time of you know real strife rather than there being any awkwardness she went out of her way to spend a lot of time talking to me wow a, you know a teenager yeah despite the other dignitaries headmasters and so on in the room and demonstrating to me how she feels about Ireland and horses and so on, and making sure that everyone in the room realised, as far as she was concerned, despite the huge loss, of course, of her favourite uncle yes, yes. to terrorist attacks 
in the west of Ireland, you know, precisely where my family actually is from, after she asked me, I informed her, she made sure that she was really comfortable and indeed happy to meet me and interested in my background and my life journey as a person. And I found that incredibly moving. And actually, Alison, since the last Planet Normal, when it was clear to me that there wasn't going to be much economics on the television and so on, rightly, because of the death of the Queen, I went off to Dublin to visit my daughter, who's at university in Dublin, as you know. Mm. And I actually spent an afternoon in a pretty rough pub on the outskirts of Dublin talking to Irish people about how they felt about the Queen. And I haven't written about this, and maybe I will one day. I'm still kind of processing it, because this was a a very much a blue-collar, working-class pub Mm. in not a particularly wealthy part of Dublin at all. And there was warmth towards Her Majesty. Now, ordinarily, someone like me would go into a pub like that. There'd be lots of joshing and, oh, you're a plastic paddy and all the rest of it. This is the way Irish people deal with those of us of Irish ethnicity born in the UK. It's a kind of a a ribbing, a a fond mickey-taking, if you like. You're one of us, but you're kind of not. And yet there was real warmth and reverence towards her and the impact she had across the Republic of Ireland when she visited in 2011 was absolutely phenomenal. She made that visit putting herself in physical danger. The security services weren't entirely happy, of course, that she was going to Ireland. Yet the demonstration, the physical courage she showed, the knowledge of horses that she showed, it really had a profound impact on how the monarchy and indeed the UK it was perceived in the Republic of Ireland. I wouldn't overstate this, but it strikes me that that was an incredibly important diplomatic and political move that she made. And she knew exactly what she was doing. I've actually talked to some members of the royal family over the last few days about that visit to Ireland and They know how important it was. It was really, really important, particularly for people like me of Irish ethnicity in the UK, a step towards the normalisation of relations between these two countries intertwined by often awkward history, but also culture and indeed blood and family. And for her to have done that was absolutely crucial. And for me, it's the most important thing that she did as monarch. A lot of people won't agree with that. But for me personally, it moved me profoundly that she did that. It moved me because she made such a huge difference just by her presence. I agree with that, Liam. And I don't think anyone else could have made that gesture of reconciliation. She said, didn't she, that there are things in the past that we can deeply regret. But look, she was a Christian woman and we forget what that means. That doesn't mean just about going to church. It's a meaningful thing about forgiveness, about seeing the best. And the late Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who I thought was a remarkable man too, said that the Queen spoke gently to the better angels of our nature which I thought was fantastic. Another thing I'd add to the amazing sort of act of being a solvent to the intractable Irish problem was pictures of her dancing with black Commonwealth leaders. Don't underestimate what it meant when she was a beautiful young woman to be in the arms of an African leader. And also the person, one of the people who adored her the most was Nelson Mandela. And Liam, he was one of the only people in her life who called her Elizabeth. Elizabeth. (laughs) I wrote a piece praising the military on absolutely astonishing performance by members of services, including people, Canadians who'd come from abroad. Phenomenal, particularly those wonderful grenadier guards. I've asked this week if I can borrow a grenadier guard for Pearson Towers, (laughs) because I think they'd come terribly in handy, wouldn't they? But they were absolutely just glorious, these young men, one of them 19, if you can believe it, all summoned back from Iraq within hours of the Queen's death, the eyes of the world upon them, the weight of a 500-pound lead-lined oak coffin on their shoulders, taking it on this epic journey from Westminster Hall to her final resting place in Windsor, where they had to climb up the steps with the coffin to St. George's Chapel. No pressure, lads. Only 4.1 billion people (laughs) watching you. And can we just end by saying something for Planet Normal residents? 
these are the normal people, Liam. We really appreciate our military, which has been hacked back, hacked back. And we take such pride in them, don't we, on these glorious occasions when they step up, absolutely beautiful music, choreographed, the naval ratings fallen in behind the coffin and a kind of protective fan for Her Majesty, the great tender care with which they carried her. And yet, successive governments absolutely pairing the army to the bone. So let's just think about that. Let's think not just on the days of ceremonial about how wonderful they are, but let's bear in mind and pay tribute to them the whole time by building up the forces, affording the kind of sort of celebration that the Queen and now the new King would surely wish. If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this and click follow so you don't miss an update. After the Queen's funeral, of course, politics and policy making are back with a vengeance. So climbing aboard the Planet Normal rocket this week is Tony Lodge, a political and energy analyst at the CPS. That's the Centre for Policy Studies. The CPS is a highly influential think tank full of policy boffins who analyse and scrutinise what the government and opposition parties are thinking, coming up with ideas. Tony recently wrote a powerful Telegraph article which struck both Alison and I as important. There's a link in the show notes to this episode. In his article, Tony Lodge explains how a series of short-sighted decisions over the last two decades by successive governments have helped undermine the UK's energy security. And given that we face energy rationing and even potential blackouts this coming winter, I started my interview with Tony Lodge by observing that we've got ourselves into a mess. We certainly have, and it's a mess which has been smouldering, to use a term, for the best part of 2025 years, Liam. I first wrote about this in 2009 for my sins, when I thought it was clear, but even at that stage, that there were some serious headwinds beginning to appear, which could and should have been avoided at that time. So this has been there for some to see and some to notice, and I would argue professionals to see and notice for quite some time. What are the big mistakes that we've made? Because even before the war in Ukraine, which has obviously elevated energy prices, energy prices were already high and the UK's strategic resilience in terms of energy seemed to be quite weak. Well, that is the key question. But when we privatised the electricity generating system and networks in 1990, the situation which really does need appreciating, was an exceptionally good one. We had gone through the 1970s and the 1980s with an excess in electricity generating capacity. We had a mixture of nuclear plants, we had a mixture of coal plants, we had oil plants. But the fundamental point was we had got what we call firm capacity. Some people use the term baseload. But we had got firm dispatchable capacity there when it was needed from a variety of different fuels. So resilience is an important word, but so is diversity. And it's literally a case of bare and simple mathematics. There is a really important point in all of this called LOLP. That's the loss of load probability. A fleet of wind turbines does not replace net a coal-fired power station, even if it is a one gigawatt wind turbine fleet off the coast of Yorkshire, that does not net replace a one gigawatt coal-fired power station. You have a loss of load probability of up to 40 to 50%. And of course, we know about the issue of it being weather dependent. So we really have got to a stage where, and the European Union did have a part in this, 
the UK was not prepared to replace the coal-fired power stations the EU was going to make it close, then it shouldn't have signed up to the directive in the first place. So there really is a, a long background here riddled with mistakes. There is indeed. And in a recent Telegraph article, we'll put the link in the show notes to this episode, Tony, you make clear, you know, you're not blaming one party in particular. It's all parties. You're saying this is a cross party failure. It seems a failure of culture because throughout all those decisions or non-decisions that you outlined in your recent Telegraph article, there is a big theme. And the big theme seems to me to be not just net zero, but a kind of disregard for energy security. The one I'd home in on is the closure of that rough gas storage site, a huge undersea cavern off the coast of Yorkshire. That accounted for 80% of our gas storage. Yes, correct. And one key point there is that because we did go through the dash for gas in the early 90s, the dash for gas was effectively the real run to build power stations which generate electricity by burning natural gas. They're known as CCGT, combined cycle gas turbines. And there's still about 40% of our electricity supply is from gas, right? That is correct, Liam. But the key point is, obviously, domestic gas, household heating and cooking. But we rely on a lot of gas in this country. And one of the key points about that, which cannot be ignored, is that we have become a gas junkie. We switched to gas predominantly from coal, and there was a lot of politics tied up with coal in the 70s and 80s, which we all know about. It was a decision taken consciously to wean ourselves off an overdependence on domestic mined coal and the trade union issues that presented in the 1980s and 70s. If we move to gas, you consequently then have to have a very robust and resilient gas production and gas storage sector. We should have still maintained and built up the most resilient storage and production sector and most generous regime for rewarding gas prospectors and pioneers as was possible. And we didn't. We didn't indeed. And we've got to a situation now, albeit with an unforeseen war in Ukraine. But we've got into a situation where, as you report, in July, our national grid it had to panic by staggeringly expensive energy from the continent, almost £10,000 per megawatt hour. That's more than 5,000% the typical price to prevent London suffering blackouts. Tony Lodge, Do we face the possibility of blackouts this winter? I think we'll have the R word first, Liam, and I hope that's the case. And the R word is rationing. One of the major, major problems we are possibly now going to have is when you build an interconnector, an undersea cable to export or import, as in mainly the case for Britain, electricity from the continent, and we've got a number of these wires, undersea wires in place now with uh, continental neighbours, The idea and the basic concept of that two-way approach, and sadly for us it's largely been one way for electricity, is that you were relying on a surplus being available in the the country and on the continent from which you are seeking to buy electricity. Now, when we have a cold period in Central or Eastern Europe, the power flows will head east, or the power flows will stay where they are, in Germany, in France, in the Low Countries, in order for the United Kingdom to secure the spare capacity it anticipates is there and it needs, it will have to pay much higher than the existing price on the continent. And I don't think enough enough people actually realise what this means. Everyone talks about domestic households, which we all accept. The big issue here will also be what I call energy-intensive industry. Those large operators, whether it be steel, whether it be glass, whether it be cement, whether it be heavy manufacturing, which consequently has to either go on to rationing or turn off and send people home. Earlier this week, Tony, we did see an energy support package unveiled by the government for businesses because, of course, businesses in recent months haven't benefited from the partial protection of an energy price cap that households have been benefiting from. There is a concern. What do you think would have happened had businesses not got any support at all? Would we have faced mass bankruptcies? Could we still? I think sadly that is the case. I think there are a lot of uh, companies, businesses which are um, 
seriously struggling, I think, but a number of them, which you can see with your own eye when you walk around and go in and out of certain places, you can see that some of them have not recovered properly yet from COVID, from the pandemic. The whole concept of a difficult winter for retail, for businesses, for people in the hospitality sector, winter is a difficult period anyway. And that energy price coming in, in a small to medium-sized organisation, or one, again, which is, has an energy-intensive side to its production and its operation, is the big difference between surviving or having to close the doors. And it's really interesting when you look at the fact that not for a very, very, very long time in this country have we actually had to wrestle with high energy bills on this extent. People often say that this was the case in the 70s when we had the energy issues. Actually, that's not the truth. We did indeed have a spike following the situation in the Middle East in the early 1970s. Interesting point about the United Kingdom at the time then was that we were actually much more dependent on domestically produced coal which was an important fuel to have available to us. We were not as overly exposed as some countries are and were to foreign oil and gas. The problem we have got now is that we have not built sufficient enough margins which allow us to be able to help stabilise the price and distance ourselves to an extent from international factors. And this is something, I think it's the first time, I think it's fair to say this since the early 1970s, which could have major electoral implications. You're calling Tony Lodge for a public inquiry into Britain's energy crisis to expose the dangerous and failed doctrine of draconian, out-of-date targets and poor policymaking over a generation. To what extent do you think the short-termism that we've clearly seen in our policymaking to what extent has it been driven by net zero? To what extent do you think our politicians have been too much about vanity, unveiling cuddly net zero targets that beat their international rivals without thinking about the cost of living for ordinary households, without thinking about, frankly, keeping the lights on? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. If we've had vanity, then it's been over practicality. I was in the car a couple of weeks ago driving down the M62, and you pass uh, two massive piles of rubble. These were big coal-fired power stations. They were dirty, but they worked. Those were closed without net replacements being brought in at the same or near same time. Now, if that's to satisfy a target, then it's to satisfy a target. But the slight issue here is going to be, without the capacity which we used to enjoy, if that capacity, because of targets, is now effectively replaced by wind, solar, interconnectors with France, Holland and other countries and Belgium on the continent, then I would be very interested to see what that means for prices and the situation when National Grid has to issue its first notice of insufficient margin either later this year or in January or February. And that's effectively when National Grid issues what, for want of a better word, is a red alert. And a red alert becomes a very serious moment. And what you're driving at, Tony, is that while renewables have a place, it's very difficult to store that renewable energy, isn't it? And what we need is baseload energy that's always there. And that is the problem. If you haven't got enough baseload energy that's always there, then our national grid is at the mercy of international markets, at the mercy of interconnectors across the continent. And that's when we end up paying, as you've shown over the summer, 5,000% more than normal prices when we get into a corner. But that's absolutely right. And there are other problems, I'm afraid, with even the um, anyone who says, well, the, the interconnector situation is a good one because in years to come, we'll be exporting lots of electricity and making lots of money from our various massive offshore wind farms and goodness knows whatever else. But that might be happening in 2032 or 2038. It's not the situation today. And that is the fundamental problem. There has been a situation in energy policy for a very long time, in my opinion, when people have looked at what might be achievable and what might be available, but they have not looked at the here and now. So if anyone were to sit down and say, we'll close Didcot, we'll close Kings North, we'll close Ferrybridge, we'll close Egbra, and we will create a capacity market which will encourage the new build of gas plant. 
That is what the Cameron government tried to do, but it simply hasn't worked. And one reason, by the way, Liam, it hasn't worked is a market which doesn't work. If you build an interconnector, and by the way, there are questions about the conflicts of interest with National Grid. They are a listed company which is trying to make money as well. If you are a company which is building an interconnector, you can import electricity from Belgium or Holland, which has been generated by a coal-fired power station there, but it can come through the wires, but not face a carbon tax in Britain or a transmissions charge. Now, that's market arbitration. And I'm amazed the CMA have never looked into it because you're importing dirty power into Britain without it having to face the same taxes a similar plant would have to face in the UK. So again, you have a major market conflict here, which has undermined the case for building new thermal plants, as we call it, fossil fuel plant, gas plant here in Britain. You work at the CPS, Tony Lodge, Centre for Policy Studies, a very well-connected think tank You know a lot about how government is thinking. That's your job. Are we going to see a slightly harder edged energy policy with a lot of what David Cameron once called the green crap thrown to one side? The incoming prime minister early in her leadership campaign, she said she was going to scrap those renewable energy subsidies on household fuel bills, which can make up to about 25% of electricity charges for households. She's obviously lifted the moratorium on fracking. How much further will she go away from the green agenda? Well, I think one key point about where we now face ourselves when you talk about the green agenda is because of the situation we're in, you're actually consequently going to see carbon emissions go up. Because what I think is going to happen, Liam, is you're going to get what's called a lot of standby diesel generation being fired up in hospital car parks, supermarket car parks, on the roofs of shopping centres. And this will be people burning fossil diesel in generators to keep lights on. People will, some people will go off grid. That's a very polluting way to avoid an energy crisis. So you're going to have an impact on air quality. You're going to have an impact on your CO2 statistics you're probably also going to see people get wedded to these machines. If you're in the diesel generator industry, you're going to make a lot of money. And they call this short-term operating reserve, store. There's going to be a lot of these store plants. Now, you can achieve significant reductions in CO2 emissions and significant growth in renewable energy and electricity growth if you have a sustainable, reliable firm energy policy running alongside One of the biggest breakthroughs for renewable power is the ability and will be the ability to store the electricity these things produce when there isn't actually a demand. This could be a huge industry and should be a huge industry, but we haven't moved in that direction. And what you have is these splurges of sporadic power being dumped on the grid. A lot of it is actually discarded because it doesn't match demand. And you have a very erratic, increasingly highly expensive system to manage and to balance. And this is part of the challenge we're facing. How we got here and why we got here, I mean, is why I think a public inquiry is a good idea. The government states on its website, we hold public inquiries in this country to prevent recurrence. Well, I think we need to prevent recurrence and understand how this occurred. I think you're absolutely right, Tony, and many, many people on Planet Normal will agree with you. Tony Lodge, thanks a lot for joining us on The Rocket of Right Thinking. I'm sitting here, co-pilot, with my head in my hands. If you could see me, why are people like Tony Lodge not running our country? Why are we in the grip of these reckless short-termists in pursuit of their virtue-signalling net zero targets prepared to put their country's energy supply at risk. About three years ago, Liam, I was on a train from King's Cross and it stopped for a really long time. And we eventually found out after it started again that I think the wind hadn't been blowing in the right direction. (laughs) And that was a preview of forthcoming attractions, wasn't it? You should have put the storm jib up on the train or whatever. (laughs) Tighten the mainsail. (laughs) Seriously, what are they thinking? thinking. Tony says a long background riddled with mistakes. I mean, a bright six former could have seen this coming, couldn't they? As we've said on Planet Normal before, you don't jump out of a plane until you make sure your parachute is working. What do you think? If there's anything that good that can come out of this ghastly energy crunch, it's that energy policy so long 
the preserve of nerds like Tony Lodger and myself, frankly, is now mainstream politics and will stay mainstream politics for a long time. We've just seen a huge business energy support package unveiled by Jacob Rees-Mogg. On Friday, the day after this episode of Planet Normal is released, there'll be another announcement, Quasi Quateng's mini-budget. The centrepiece of that will be more detail on that energy support package for households, a cap on the unit cost of electricity, which infers that the average household will spend £2,500 on their combined energy bill, electricity and gas a year, whatever happens to wholesale gas prices. This is a major, major issue now. It's going to cost the government tens of billions of pounds. No, it's not going to cost the government, Liam. It's going to cost the British taxpayer. They don't have any money. They spend our money. And the plan for households was estimated to cost £150 billion. Now the plan to bail out businesses who are desperate, unable to pay ludicrous energy bills, that's going to be at least another £150 billion. That's £300 billion. And the interest payments on UK government debt in August was at its highest level for that month on record. We spent last month £8 billion servicing the debt that these morons have run up. I feel like Dr Frankenstein. I've created a monster (laughs) economist to attack... Attacking me, God! <laughs> you have, but I'm, am I getting any of this wrong? Because when I, I tell look you, at it, what you're getting exactly right is that it is, of course, us who pay. It is, and of course, we are in this position because of years of moronic, frankly, short-termist policy making. I agree with you entirely on that. Where we may differ. And it, actually, we don't differ because the reality is no one knows. We don't know how much this energy package is going to cost because we don't know where wholesale energy prices are going to go. Given that we are where we are, we had to do something. The alternative, as Tony Lodge rightly said, would be mass, mass bankruptcies, loads of people losing their jobs as companies from pubs to restaurants to laundrettes to steelmakers went out of business. You would have had... Millions of households threatening to not pay and not paying standoffs, energy being cut off, people freezing potentially to death. It would have been absolutely awful. But given that we are where we are, I don't think this energy support package will cost as much as everyone's saying it. It will be tens of billions. Whether it's hundreds of billions depends on where wholesale energy prices go. And where wholesale energy prices go does, of course, depend on Russia, Ukraine and so on. But Western Europe has been pretty rapidly diversifying away from Russia. And I think that's going to be a long term trend. Look, I'm as angry as you are, even more so. I've been angry about this stuff for years and years and years. It's nice now that other people are noticing with all respect. This is a key area of government policy and it has been blighted by short-termism. I don't think Tony Lodge is going to get his public inquiry, but I, I think what we will get now is a whole range of journalists and voters, frankly, who aren't energy policy specialists, pushing ministers on this very, very issue. I don't think our environmental policy will ever be the same. And frankly, I think that's a good thing. Yes, I do want us to move away from fossil fuels and towards renewables, but gradually and in a way that doesn't wreck the economy and load the implications, the cost implications on ordinary firms and households. And that has been what we've been doing. We've been worshipping at the temple of the doom goblin Greta Thunberg, frankly, <laughs> and we haven't been listening nearly enough to very, very smart even-tempered, highly analytical, brainy people like Tony Lodge. Let's just examine the exquisite irony of us stripping ourselves of all those coal-fired power stations, which we can all remember. You know, when I get the train home to Wales, you pass the Didcot power station belching out. But as he says, as Tony says, the things we're going to have to do now are going to see carbon emissions go up. We're actually importing coal. I mean, imagine the carbon footprint of the coal that we are actually having to bring in coal. The sheer brainlessness. You know, let's put the Grenadier Guards in charge for a year and see how they get on. You couldn't run an army, Liam, like this. Preferably hunky 19-year-old ones, right? (laughs) Rentable by the hour. (laughs) 
And black trousers with a gold stripe down. Can I just say before we talk a bit more about trussonomics that this same short termism, I just alluded to it briefly talking about the military on display at the Queen's funeral. People are now saying that our army, the numbers in our armed forces are dangerously low. And I heard an expert say we were under defended. Does the world seem safe enough to you, Liam, for us to have run down our armed forces? Again, the same ludicrous virtue signalling, oh, let's not have any nasty soldiers. Let's pay a couple more sort of inclusivity officers. We are insane. You know, we need to be defending our country for our children and our grandchildren from these lunatics. But just just quickly now, trussonomics sounds to me like Mrs. Slocum's Playtex girdle. What is trussonomics, co-pilot? <laughs> trussonomics is... The view of the economy, as espoused by Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, that the Treasury, the Office of Budget Responsibility, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, the economic policy making and analysing establishment, if you like, they're too cautious, they're too worried about the amount of government debt that we're racking up. We need to lower taxes, we need to go for growth, we need to grow the cake unashamedly rather than worrying about the distribution of the existing cake. That's the essence of trussonomics. Mm. And be in no doubt, Alison, when this mini budget, nothing mini about quasi Quateng, is unveiled on Friday, there will be cries of derision from across the political and media class, from across the academic world, that Liz Truss is getting it completely wrong. I'm not so sure. I think the policymaking establishment has been too cautious in recent years. We shall see. But one thing is for sure. We are certainly at a pivotal moment in our economic history. Liam, as you know, now I've become a, a very, very highly qualified economics expert. It doesn't seem to me that this is trickle down economics. It's more fire hose economics, isn't it? Truss is literally throwing everything at this. And of course, as you say, there are some risks. But what I like is I like that she has said she's prepared to be unpopular with this plan for growth. Personally, I think it's refreshing to hear a Prime Minister talk candidly. She said a trade deal with the US is unlikely in the near future, although we do enjoy a £7 billion trading surplus with the states. And I think that Boris's big problem, as we discussed many times on Planet Normal, was he wasn't prepared to be unpopular. And that led to totally incoherent policies. So I kind of think, let the girl have a go. Now on to our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful messages coming in. You know how much we love reading them and hearing from you, our fantastic Planet Normal listeners. We begin this week with a very special contribution from Johnny, not his real name, who sent us a photograph, Liam, of a pamphlet with the title on the front, Operation London Bridge, which of course was the code name for the death of Her Majesty the Queen. Johnny's a member of the Royal Company of Archers, which is an ancient 17th century archery club that was asked in 1822 to provide a bodyguard to King George IV on the first official visit of a monarch to Scotland since the Jacobite Rebellion. I'll just hand over now to Johnny's own words. I stood vigil on the catafalque in Westminster Hall, five watches of 20 minutes each. You go from not wanting to F it up to taking it all in, to being ready after one hour, 40 minutes of standing motionless for the next vigil to take over. There were 20 vigils. It was silent. I could only see the feet of the people in the queue. It was almost an out-of-body experience. I was also on duty in Edinburgh where we escorted the coffin, provided a guard of honour at St Giles, did all the vigils, announced the new king at the Mere Cross and escorted him into the den of mediocrity that is the Scottish Parliament. We archers were free. All volunteers, we cost the taxpayer nothing. We do it for the honour of serving as the sovereign's bodyguard in Scotland. We buy our own uniforms, paid for our own transport to London, stayed with family or friends. And we did it for her. We would have walked to London if the train strikes required it. No swords or bows and arrows are allowed on the plane. 3.30am, reporting for dress rehearsal in Edinburgh. 
on day of death plus two. On the news of Her Majesty's death, we all returned to Edinburgh. Those who were on holiday, expats, from all over the world, the archers came. We knew. We didn't need to be told. Only a minority are ex-military, but rehearsals made us every bit as good as the army. We did it for her. This is one from Tim on a similar theme. The Queen had what's referred to in classical Latin as auctoritas, a type of influence and authority that transcends actual power and is not readily subject to the immediate whims of politicians or public sentiment. The monarch is an important and evolving archive of accumulated values, wisdom and conscience preserved within the cloak of duty by a regal institution. It may be discarded by Australia or other nations, but it's likely impossible to create a satisfactory substitute. The persona of Elizabeth II wasn't created or designed. It is the manifestation of a centuries-old process of advancement, an anchor we can hold on to, a mirror whose reflection we use to see how we size up. A constitutional monarchy may be destroyed by itself or by the nations it oversees. However, if it is ever dissolved, knowing that it cannot be recreated, we shall come to regret its loss with intense bitterness and longing. Amidst the drama of war, economic pain and an epidemic, it is an integral part of our planet normal. All the best, Tim. Matt says, I'm an ex-Coldstream guard and I agree that the bearer party from the Grenadiers at Her Late Majesty's funeral was superb. I watch any ceremonial drill like a hawk and I thought they were nigh on perfect. Under pressure, these young lads came through, as so many of our young people do in far-flung places where they die or come back changed forever. The regiments of foot have been cut back dramatically, just as the rest of the army has. Old, proud regiments amalgamated into new ones, and the same job done with less men. This is how successive governments and the MOD always treats the army. Do more with less. Lions led by donkeys has always been true. And until we get serious about our defence, young people will have their lives put at risk by incompetence and penny-pinching. The world is a dangerous place and we need to wake up. The globalist dream of endless peace and free trade is over. It's still a dog-eat-dog world and we have to be a big dog or someone far nastier will be. And Michael says on a similar theme, having served in the Royal Navy for 12 years, allow me to say the following. The armed forces are the only part of the public sector that ever performs well and that have the confidence of the public. The reasons are glaringly obvious. One, the forces are the only part of the public sector that ever has to compete. If they fail to come up to standard, lives, skirmishes, battles and wars are lost. This pressure is completely absent in the rest of the public sector. Two, values and tradition matter. Despite pressure from the MOD, the armed forces do not cave in as completely as others to every passing fad. There is something steadfast, reassuring and familiar about service, integrity, high standards, the intense community of a regiment or submarine ship and a willingness to sacrifice Cutting defence has been a constant process since the Sandus Review in 1957. Post-Cold War, it has accelerated. No votes in defence anymore. And in our inward-looking, welfareist, wokey bubble, we have forgotten that human nature, and therefore the world, remains unchanged. I look upon Alison's borrowed grenadier guard with envy. And finally, Liam, this is from Gareth. I got lucky with my first military unit which had an extremely professional attitude and the patience to deal with a teenager out of his depth. It was the father I never had. Moving on from those incredible emails, here's another incredible email about something else. We discussed on a previous Planet Normal, Alison, a column I wrote about the gnomes of Zurich. (laughs) (laughs) Those market traders who basically push governments around across the world, dumping their currencies and jacking up their borrowing costs. And this is from Bob in inverted commas. He is a former mug winner and he's rapidly becoming Planet Normal's official poet laureate. So this is from Bob, the gnomes of Zurich, with apologies to W.H. Auden and every other (laughs) poet on earth. The gnomes of Zurich. Chancellor, are you ready for the perilous path ahead? 
Then sit with me by the money tree, for I have a tale of dread. <laughs> Beware the gnomes of Zurich, for they're a brutal bunch. They prey on finance ministers and gobble them up for lunch. <laughs> Just one mistake and they could pounce and make it hard to borrow, <laughs> causing us catastrophe and many years of sorrow. <laughs> so as you start your quest for growth, be careful what you do. Beware the gnomes of Zurich. For they'll be watching you. I have to say, Bob, that one is your best yet. <laughs> Bob the Planet Normal Bard. Absolutely. <laughs> so, co-pilot, developing our energy theme articulated so beautifully by Tony Lodge. I tweeted this week asking people how the we're definitely not turning the heating on until November pledge was going. Got some absolutely fantastic replies, including from Planet Normal regulars. This is from Warspite. I'm calling my dressing gown a smoking jacket. I live with my wife and two daughters. I've removed the thermostat from the wall. It's under lock and key. They have plenty of jumpers and we bought a heated throw. Flora said, wood burners on for the second night. We bought an electric blanket rather than switch the heating on. We're lucky that we can afford to absorb the price rises, but we're not giving those greedy bastards one penny more <laughs> than we absolutely have to. Gillian says, we've got the back door open and it's 14 degrees, but we are Scottish. Colin, November's been crossed off. We're now aiming to hold out until the 1st of October. Rachel, I grew up with no central heating. Ice formed on the insides of our single glazed bedroom windows at night if we let the fire die down, which of course we did. Used a Victorian bed warming pan to take the chill out of the sheets before I got in. God, it's like something out of Oliver Twist. <laughs> Cherry, last year I would have put the heating on. This year I put a blanket over my legs and feet. Each day we can put off heating the house is a bonus. Semper says... We've booked a 29-night cruise for January. Not that expensive when you think that we'll save two million quid on the heating and cooking. <laughs> Toby says, I'm still swimming in an unheated pool, 15 <laughs> degrees for 45 minutes, and seeing if I can hold out until November gets the body much more acclimatised to lower temperatures. I think that's taking... British eccentricity to new depths, Toby. Chris says, "When oh, I live with one of these. Oh, here we go. Prep school hardships I have known. Chris says, when I was at boarding school, the heating didn't go on until bonfire night. We were hardy boys. Alexandra says, no heating. I've gone for a poodle and a mongrel. <laughs> £1.40 a day to run. Glyn adds, I have a very warm Jack Russell Terrier. I can recommend them. Nigel, the heating's on, but I hope all those sanctimonious clowns who block roads, damage tyres, think fracking is dangerous and object to others living a civilised life are preparing to huddle in the cold and dark and have rid themselves of all clothes and belongings made from petrochemicals. Quite right. Helen, I thought I'd better test my heating today, you know, just to check it works, frugally on for 30 minutes to bring the temperature up to 18 degrees. Lynn, I struggled this morning, but I didn't turn the heating on. Can't believe at my age I'm now not using my oven or able to put on heat as required. Maybe hibernation's worth considering. And Andy says on that theme, I'm getting in a box with the tortoise for the winter and the wife and kids are going to wake us in March. <laughs> I, co-pilot, have ordered a deluxe heated zebra throw. Hasn't arrived yet. I'm, I'm slight, do you think it'll be the animal? Do you think it'll be the actual? <laughs> Well, my lioness throws are going to come and gobble it up. <laughs> and before we go, we need to revisit the vexed question of hello gate. Oh. Because we've had lots of emails about your hellos, Alison. Oh. This is from Charlie. Dear Alison, I have to say I detected an attempt at a different hello this week in your Planet Normal introduction. <laughs> Please up. revert to your delightful original, which combined a dash of Marilyn Monroe with a frisson of Leslie Phillips, <laughs> which made me smile every time. And this is from Annabelle. Good afternoon, Alison. I loved the old way you said hello, so oh. there has been a change. Bring it back. Ignore old snipey pants who didn't like it. <laughs> and on that Annabelle-shaped bombshell. And if you don't know who Leslie Phillips was when he saw a pretty girl, he'd say, ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> That's it from Planet Normal for another week. Calm down. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week. Alison, it's your turn. I think it has to go to Johnny for that absolutely wonderful account of standing guard over our fantastic late queen. If you enjoy Planet Normal, we jolly well hope you do, please leave us a rating and review 
but no comments on hello anymore because I'm paralysed with self-consciousness Keep them rolling in, guys. Keep them rolling in. <laughs> it really helps others to find us. And God knows we need as many as we can on the planet of normality. Just some news before we go. Details to share with you about our second special live episode of Planet Normal. The event's being held on Wednesday, the 19th of October, as we said, at the IET London in Savoy Place. Doors will open at 6.30. We'll be joined by the renowned author and journalist Lionel Shriver and the former Brexit minister, Lord David Frost, the Telegraph columnist. Plus, we'll do a live Q&A with the audience there on the night. Tickets are £30 for Telegraph subscribers and we'll put the link where you can get those tickets in the show notes to this episode. David Frost and Lionel Shriver, two more intelligent or fantastic people we could not find on Planet Normal. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor, No Hitch, with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.